Hello there. Welcome to my podcast, Princess and the P, Survivor Edition, where we talk about healing from trauma, life's seemingly impossible tests, and how these ongoing tests impact our relationships with others, as well as the one we have with ourselves. Thanks for being here. My name is Faith Christine Bergevin. You can call me Faith. I wasn't sure I was ready to share this story quite yet. It still feels fresh, even though it happened three years ago. Yes, the pandemic, the shutdowns, the rush on toilet paper, that all happened three years ago this month. It was a profound change to our society, to our world. And for me personally, I already was going through something pretty profound at the time. Listen to hear how writing helped keep me sane, grounded, and feeling like I could go on when it seemed all hope was lost. How writing saved me during the pandemic. A survivor story. Just before the start of the pandemic, I was in this strange limbo for my burgeoning new career. In December 2019, all my coursework was complete, as well as the final comprehensive exam for my master's degree. Everything was ready to go. All that was left was to have my degree conferred. Then I could work as a professional counselor. I couldn't work in this field. I'd been training in for years until that happened. Reporting. Early 2020 was also odd due to another issue. I finally reported my rapist to police. A trying experience, even though the police officers were kind and sort of trauma-informed. By early March, I'd begun dating again and participated in a new dance community I'd found. On March 2nd, 2020, I met with police after they'd talked with the man I accused of rape, and they informed me they weren't going to proceed with charges against him. Predictably, it seems, he'd wooed the young female police officer. He was good at that. Just hearing her share what he said about me, about us, floored me as they were all lies. Even as I clarified to her that I did not say or do what he said I did, I could tell he'd gotten to her. She turned a complete 180 from the first time I met her, and it seemed she was affected by the power of his eyes, those charged, intense eyes that could change on the spot, from boyish to seductive. Her stance confirmed for me what many other victims of rape know. No one believes the woman, at least in terms of burden of proof. With less than 1% of felony convictions in rapes, as in out of 1,000 rapes, 975 perpetrators will go free. It is to be expected. I remember two specific things after I got home from meeting with police that day. One, I felt numb. I sat on my couch for a long time, just sitting there, staring into space. There were no more tears. 
although I might have cried as I drove home. I don't remember. I recall it being a highly stressful event with another police officer there who hadn't been present when I made my initial statement a few weeks before. I found her to be cold and dismissive. After sitting a while reflecting on the story they related he gave them and the conclusion of their investigation, I knew it was over. Legally, legally at least. Mentally and emotionally, it was going to take way longer than that. But legally, we were done. The second thing I did that day was the only thing I could think of. I turned on music. Then I danced. I knew I'd done all I could. I knew that I'd explored this to the very end, that I'd satisfied the part of me wanting justice. Had I not reported, I never would have known. Now I knew. He would not be charged. But as my victim support worker told me, there were wins. That was quite surprising when she suggested that there could possibly be wins for such a thing. But she was right. First, I spoke up. I told my story. I shared my experience and the ensuing, ongoing, horrific trauma from that man's actions. I shared my story. I spoke up. That was a win. Two, he had been forced to have an uncomfortable conversation with police about his sexual practices. That couldn't have been easy. And he had to. And three, if he ever does it again and someone reports him, there's now a record. My name will come up. There will be a pattern noted. It's sad that my experience doesn't count enough in the eyes of the law to press charges, but this is where it is. It seems to be it's only the case where there's enough evidence for charges to happen when there are many. We've seen this with famous perpetrators in the media, that it's only when there are lots of women that people stand up and take notice. Otherwise, it's a familiar story of he said, she said. But I made my peace with that. In my dance that day, which was the only thing I could think to do to just shake it all out, it became a bit of a frenzy as I spun in my living room and shook out the trauma. I danced out the man, the police investigation, the police officers, the office where I had done the reporting, and my disappointment, which also had a tinge of relief because now I wouldn't have a long, drawn-out court case. I danced with abandon, fast and hard with the music blaring. During one wild swing of my arms, I hit my hand on the wooden bookcase behind me. My hand started to throb. My back was aching. I turned off the music and tended to my injury, getting ice from the freezer. I looked at the quickly emerging bruise with a mixture of curiosity and dread. The bruise was on the same hand, in the same area as the one I got that morning. the one he gave me. When the world changed. With reporting done, I focused on my future, preparing for when my degree would be conferred, planning my website, 
and attending a weekend-long dance workshop where I felt happy and joyful in ways I hadn't been in a long time. Two men asked me out that weekend. Shortly after, March 16th happened, and my world, the entire world, changed. Suddenly, it was uncertain if my degree would be conferred when it was promised. Certainly, there would be no convocation. The stock markets crashed, and I buried my head in my bedsheets as I saw my savings dwindle, the one thing keeping me afloat, paying my rent, and allowing me to support my children. All the uncertainty, my inability to earn a living, and my rage against university fat cats who still got their salaries, but delayed my degree, all coalesced to a point that I despaired I could even survive. To say I was distressed is an understatement. No counseling agencies were hiring, as all jobs were frozen, even if I could be hired without my degree, and no one was working in offices. I spiraled, not knowing what to do. I turned to the one thing left I could do, right. Order out of chaos. On March 26, 2020, I created a vision board of my experience with that man, of the rape. I put my headphones in, popped a podcast on, I think it was my first, and sat on my living room floor. I took out five by seven index cards and began writing key words and short phrases. I taped large pieces of paper together and placed these cards on the page. The vision board became the basis for my memoir. Soon after, in between helping my kids with homeschooling and encouraging daily walks and leading yoga in the living room and supporting them in their own losses, as well as building my website for my soon-to-be-allowed professional career, I wrote. I began with the first chapter, called A View From Up Here. It was my attempt to see the relationship I had with this man from a new perspective. I no longer wanted to be consumed by the story, by the event, by my own internal chaos. I wanted to be free, and the only way I could imagine freedom and see peace coming was to write. I needed to go back in time and see him, see me, see us together and look for signs, because I'm sure there were signs that I just missed. And so I started with the first scene that made sense to me when we met on the day that I asked him to heal with me after the rape. I know that sounds outrageous, outrageous and unbelievable, but frankly, intimate partner sexual violence is outrageous. And my attempts to understand the morning in question and all that led up to it bordered on obsession. No one could understand, not therapists even. I didn't care. I was desperate. I was in pain. I was at times suicidal. In desperation, I often wrote pleading emails to my former therapist who'd retired in January and, and who was there for me in those initial days and weeks after the rape. But even though he'd retired, 
generously, he'd reply. And I'd print his encouragement reply emails and tape them to my closet door and read them when I thought I'd lose my mind. At one point, that door was covered in paper, covered in support and hope. My mantra was, the only way out is through. Sanity in survival. It felt insane to write that memoir, but I really didn't see any other choice. I was consumed with all distractions taken away due to the pandemic. Silence reigned in the city. Shops were closed, activities suspended, work opportunities were closed to me. Dance with other people was forbidden. All there was to do was build my website and write. And I did. I wrote in my bedroom inches from where it happened. I wrote in the park where he and I met to discuss how we would go about healing from that moment, from that moment, from that morning. When my kids were with their father, I'd go to that park and sit for hours at a picnic table. I'd write until the deer came, until the birds were too loud, until it became dark and I started at the rustling in the bushes behind me. I wrote. It was the one thing that kept me sane in the aftermath of rape, the loss of community and activities that had given me joy and contributed to my healing. And during a dark, turbulent time that the American Psychological Association is now calling a generational event with catastrophic consequences. Now, three years later, as I look back on that time, I feel immense compassion towards myself. I feel grateful that I did what I needed to do to stay sane, even if it might have seemed insane to others. Although, truth be told, I only told one person, my former therapist with whom I shared my thesis for my memoir. I wrote it in an email. And then a minute later, I quickly wrote back to him saying, please disregard, sorry to bother you and just delete it, okay? And he wrote back he would, but not before saying he thought it a jewel. Life's tests. In 2020, Life as we knew it turned upside down. All I'd worked for for many years was delayed and forbidden due to a terrible virus. I felt like I was drowning. Life tested me over and over. It asked, what will you do to survive now? How will you handle all these feelings? What are you doing with the chaos that still lives inside of you? And on March 26, 2020, I organized the chaos into my vision board. Then I wrote. And you, how do you soothe yourself when you feel you can't go on? And what do you do to help you survive amidst your challenges now? And so it ends. I only have two footnotes this week. Um, one is referencing the statistics that there are less than 1% felony convictions for rape. This is a statistic from Rain. 
um, it's a great organization. They have excellent information on their website. I have the link on my Substack, Princess and the Peace Survivor Edition publication. You can find it there. My second um, footnote is I referenced the APA calling the pandemic a generational event with catastrophic consequences. I've spoken about this before in previous essays about resilience and, um, and how in particular the social isolation that we were forced to endure has been really difficult. And I don't know what you've noticed, but um, for me, um, as things became quote unquote back to normal and you know we're all going back to living our lives, I have noticed such a difference in relating to other people. Initially, things were very excited and, and people were so glad, especially with dancing, to get back with, with one another and, and to be able to do it. And then, then I noticed kind of like a fluctuation of like cautiousness and just staying with certain people and relationships breaking apart. Um, yeah, I think this has really messed up with a lot of people and, and what our sense of safety is and what does community mean. And I think um, we're still, you know, in the early days of post-pandemic, it'll be really interesting to see how we continue to adjust as a society. Um, where I got the quote for APA talking about that it's a catastrophic had the pandemic has had catastrophic consequences um that's on their page where they're requesting submissions on research on post-traumatic growth and resilience so this was a global trauma like having all these things taken away and being forced to be a certain way and wear masks and you know take our children out of school i mean this is just i mean it, it we were all in shock, I think, and frozen for a really long time. And, and now, you know, to have it released, you know, these feelings needed to go somewhere and they went underground and then they, they begin to come up. And for me, you know, like now I have a little perspective and I could see how I went into the pandemic, you know, in trauma for sure. And how things were maybe a little heightened for me because of the trauma I was already in. And now that I'm, you know, out of it, being able to kind of look back and have that perspective um, to look at, you know, the harm that was done for many different reasons. I'm not going to get political, um, but we need to acknowledge that the pandemic had an effect on us. And, you know, we're all doing the best we can to survive. And everybody was trying to figure out, you know, the best way for them and their family. So thank you for listening. Um, I hope you found this interesting. Um, this was my audio recording of my essay that I published on Tuesday. I publish a new essay on healing and mental health, recovery from trauma, information about emotions and dealing with unspeakable um, issues. I write essays like this every week. Um, and then I record an audio on Fridays. So there's two postings. If you would like to um, be a part of this community, you know, uh, go to my uh, Substack, Princess in the P, Survivor Edition, and subscribe. 
there are options. You can be a free subscriber or a paid subscriber. You get a little bit more as a paid subscriber. Um, this is a reader-supported podcast, so I would appreciate you becoming a subscriber because your support means I can continue to research, write, and produce this work. And for you, you will get a, a new piece in your inbox. You won't have to come searching for it. It'll just arrive in your email. Thank you for listening and be well.